Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. The NBA, like the NFL, looking to boost business overseas. The Basketball League wrapping up its global games ahead of the start of the 15-16 regular season October 27th. NBA teams visited Madrid, Milan, cities in China, and Rio to play local teams. The Orlando Magic traveled to Rio for a trip that featured multiple community service events, including lessons for local kids put on by players, as well as an exhibition game against hometown club Flamenco. A large reason for trying to win over the hearts and minds of Brazilian fans is because, as Magic CEO Alex Martin summarized, last January and February, the prime summer vacation months for Brazilians, the Magic played several regular season games in Orlando, each drawing more than 2,000 ticket-buying fans from Brazil, and one game drew about 3,000 fans from Brazil. Magic executives have been trying to promote their own brand for over a year now in an attempt to develop relationships with major Brazilian companies to attract them as new sponsors. This is just the latest example of an American sports league making a valiant push to expand its reach across the world, taking advantage of a largely untouched market, especially with Olympics coming to Rio next year. Las Vegas is still making a push to get an NHL team and Fidelity National Financial Chair Bill Foley leading the effort. He continues to try and convince the league and NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman that Las Vegas is more than just casinos and gambling, and there's a demand for hockey that can be sustained. Foley said, I don't believe Bettman believes how Vegas responded in terms of season ticket deposits. We have 13,500 season ticket deposits, and these are not casinos. This is the people of Las Vegas. We have deposits for a team that doesn't exist, for an arena that's not yet built. That's when it all started coming together. Foley and those involved in the city's bid hope to be given a team by early 2016 so they can start organizing the franchise and putting the necessary pieces in their respective places. NHL expansion seems a certainty, especially with the $500 million expansion fee. Las Vegas seems to be included as part of a Seattle, Quebec City, and Arizona relocation master plan discussion. And overseas soccer teams continue to score in the U.S. While official details have not yet been released, sources said ESPN outbid several networks for a U.S. package of European soccer rights that include the 2020 European Cup World Cup qualifiers and the planned UEFA Nations League Tournament of Friendlies. The sources say the price tag is more than $110 million, a huge jump from the current rights fees. Univision won the Spanish language rights to do the same package of events in a deal said to be around $70 million. Neither network has actually signed a contract yet, but that's expected to happen in the near future to finalize all terms. And as global soccer continues to become a mainstream offering in the United States, expect the rights fees to continue to skyrocket. And now to the world of college sports, our guest, Oklahoma Athletic Director, Joe Castiglione. Athletic Director of the Year in 2004, again in 2009, seven national championships in football, softball, gymnastics as Athletic Director, University of, 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 uh, of Oklahoma. The esteemed Joe Castiglione, how are you? 
Well, I'm doing great. Looking forward and excited about what lies ahead. It's got to be the way it is. We said we would look forward in all contexts. So, first of all, the Power Five is now probably the way we would refer to how you find yourself in the middle of a Power Five conference at the top of the heap of one of those conferences. But it changes the entire dynamic of the way college football is administered these days, I'll bet you would say. Tell me, just at the outset, how things have changed for you day-to-day in the last couple of years. Well, the focus is, uh, is still on the student-athlete as it should be. And you know, I said since I got into this business that anything and everything we do must have a tie back to creating the best, if not you know, an unforgettable experience for the student-athletes that are under our supervision. And regardless of the sport in which they play, they come to a university with you know, dreams and aspirations and trying to find their way, and we're here to try to provide the resources and the structure and the ability for them to use their gifts to get an, um, an education and leave here with a meaningful degree, and while they're at it, they... They come with uh, some special talents that they they actually can um, use, you know, both in, in gaining, you know, the financial aid as well as, you know, the opportunity to compete against the best in the country and and then learn, you know, all the other aspects of growing and becoming you know, a more prepared person, you know, when they're ready to leave. And so that's still our primary responsibility. But as we go forward, we're... We're having to face, you know, so many more challenges and trying to provide that opportunity, and we're working through it. You know, sometimes, you know, you could point at one, two, or, you know, three different things, and we wish we could have been able to do them sooner than we've been able to do them, and now we've made the changes in our governance structure, as you referred to at the outset, that allow us to make, you know, decisions that permit us to use some of the resources to help student-athletes, and, you know, yet we're, you know, seems like every week or so someone's challenging, you know, the the uh, the role of amateurism, and we're trying to deal with that too. But, you know, every day that we have student-athletes under our leadership, we're trying to provide them the, you know, the best model so they can be prepared when they leave. And, Joe, we've talked about this before, obviously. You run a tight ship at one of the top 15, 20, maybe even more revenue-producing athletic programs in the country. What's it like, the new feeling of effectively budgeting to uncertainty? You've always got to do some planning in advance. This is a business show. We now have the O'Bannon case winding its way through the appellate level. We've got the Power Five shakeup. You've been on the governing committee, so you understand how things are changing Conference musical chairs may be over in many respects, but the allocation of dollars to student-athletes is evolving as well. So is your pencil sharpened in a different way than it was a couple of years ago? It certainly is. In spite of you know, the constant uh, reports of increased revenue, be it coming from the inception of a college football playoff or conference revenue sharing, which is fortified by uh, television rights fees. Uh, there are 
probably just as many examples that don't get talked about referring to the rise in expense. It's, it's uh, much more challenging to try and create a broad-based athletic program, a successful one uh, on top of that, than it's ever been. And people can point to one, two, or three different things in that regard, too, and say, well, if it wasn't for this, you wouldn't have these kinds of pressures. But we uh, don't individually um, get to define the marketplace at each and every turn, but we still have to respond to it. That is, in fact, if we want to you know, com continue to remain competitive in, in certain areas. And so you know, sometimes you know, things grow and rates that uh, are mind-boggling, but again, you know, we have a choice to do it or not. And then, you know, accept the repercussions from whatever decision we made either way. And so it is more challenging than it's ever been before. But, you know, we have to remain entrepreneurial. We at Oklahoma are one of only five universities left in America at any level that can say they're truly self-sustaining, which by definition is operating under our own power. We don't receive any uh, financial support from the state, no uh, tax appropriations or anything of that nature. Uh, we don't have any institutional financial subsidies, nor do we have any student fees that flow to intercollegiate athletics. Whatever penny, dime, dollar we spend, we have to generate on our own. On top of that, we're good stewards of our our resources, and we're, we're actually helping the university to a tune of about $8 million per year. So we have to be entrepreneurial. But when we do that, Rick, we don't operate you know, totally with the idea of commercialization. We're trying to figure out you know, the revenue streams that are possible and uh, generate you know, those new streams to, to go back to you know, funding the model we have for in our case, 21 sports, almost 600 student-athletes, and that we're paying our way, building state-of-the-art facilities, you know, trying to uh, provide all the resources for student-athletes, hiring and retaining outstanding coaches and staff, and, and as I mentioned, being you know, a great extension of the university mission. It's a hard question to ask because I'm asking you for that, that – uh, crimson colored crystal ball for you to take it out and look a decade ahead. You can't even look a week ahead in some contexts. But as one of the self-sustaining five, you're in a different situation, yet you're viewed as a consensus builder as it relates to governance for entire D1 structure in the future, and I'd say probably all of college athletics. Uh, are your problems and issues more similar or different than we could call them the have-nots. Let's call them the non-revenue-sustaining D1 schools and then the D2, D3, I know they go by another name, schools. And how do you uh, reconcile the differences and disparities over time as you look at issues like number of sports you have to have, men's versus women's playoff system, uh, all of the recruiting student-athletes, let's call it, all, all of those issues are huge issues, but they're dealt with differently at different levels. So comment on that if that's not too much to comment on. 
Well, I might uh, go into the wrong area when I answer uh, your question with a question. And you know, the question would be, who is it we're trying to be? You know, are we trying to be competitive with schools that are uh, you know, in, a, in a different uh, category in terms of their ability to, to generate revenue? Or are we trying to be competitive with the schools that have like missions, like uh, opportunities, like sources of revenue? And you know, one gets you know, uh, into trouble when you know, we don't want to take away the American dream and the idea of, of improving and building a program and becoming successful. Because if not for that, we wouldn't have seen some of the great stories in sport. But um, some of the frustrations come into play, Rick, as you mentioned, when you know certain schools that don't have the means, and, and not because any of us say they don't. It's just you know they're operating you know within their ability to generate those kinds of, of resources, trying to be like another school that has. You know, significantly more opportunity, and so th therein lies the rub. We we can't legislate that, nor should we, and we shouldn't take away, um, you know, someone's aspirational opportunity to grow their program and strengthen their university. That that doesn't float in in you know, America in a way of thinking of improving. But you know, sometimes these arguments get get um, defined along those lines. And if we are supposed to create a homogenous approach where everybody has the same resources, well, then somebody needs to, to tell us that. You know? And if, if not, you know, we want to be able to you know, focus on you know, what, what's in our best interest at our university and try to strengthen our own conference and you know, our conference in, in uh, competing against, you know, other conferences, if you will. I mean, it's not really the conference. The conference, that's probably not well said, but it, more the institutions trying to, to compete for championships. And that's the decision we've made, um, and we're trying to do the best we can with it. And for me to, you know, tell or, or say what another institution should or should not do is not – it's, it's just not right. You know, we just have to be able to focus on what we can do. And I think the, you know, the idea behind you know, the change governance structure is, is to be able to allow the schools with the ability to you know, create and, and provide resources the chance to do that and not necessarily require the others to do it too. Um, so that's why the legislation has been termed permissive, not required. So that allows schools uh, we, to decide what they want to do. Are we happy with the current new playoff system, and how quickly do we go to eight? Well, I'm in the camp of letting it play out a little bit longer. But I said previously um, that I, I think it's going to be difficult to keep it at four for a long time. The differences you know, between... The top four or six teams are so small that you know it, it's going to be tough, you know, to you know to have a playoff that 
doesn't include enough teams that have been considered comparable to each other. Perhaps it could it, it'll go to eight. I don't think it would ever need to go beyond eight. Uh, I really don't. I've thought about it, and I do think in our world and way we're set up, I think eight would be the right number uh, if it did expand. But I've seen models that allow six to be in the in the mix, if you will, and so I guess you could say there's an interim step there. I don't have I don't have the crystal ball for that, Rick, and so uh, I don't. I know what I hear from others that there isn't any appetite to go beyond four, but we just have too many schools that are doing so well, and this is an outgrowth of the parity we've talked about for the last couple three decades. We saw we saw it coming. We have rules that allowed it to develop when the the scholarship limitations uh, were put into play. So. We shouldn't be surprised that there are more universities having better seasons than we've seen you know, in our history. That, in some ways, was by design and, secondly, by uh, people's willingness to step forward and build their programs and look at the top ten right now. So this, as I said earlier, is an extension of, of opportunity we have in America. That if somebody sets a goal and they want to build their program, so be it. Final question, really important one. What is the biggest challenge or has been the biggest challenge for you running a 21-sport monolith to a level that causes you to be named the Athletic Director of the Year by Sports Business Daily in 2009 or successfully walking on and actually playing football at the University of Maryland in the late 60s? Well, it's never about one person, ever. And so I take myself out of the equation in, in, in the largest sense, if you will, because I've been fortunate to work with highly talented, highly driven, and successful people, and I really think that it's been the collective efforts of, of great people that make an organization successful, that allows it to meet the challenges head-on to attract you know, the next wave of successful people and that's what we do in college athletics. We're always having, you know, opportunity to develop the people that are in our program, but they move on and, and open the door for the next wave of uh, people seeking the same opportunity to fulfill a dream. And I've been very fortunate to have great support from the presidential level, the board level, and have an opportunity to work with the same president now for my 18th year, having continuity in our coaching ranks, and um, you know the winningest football coach in Oklahoma history, and Bob Stoops, and having uh, two great basketball coaches, and Lon Kruger, Sherry Cole, both setting records in their own right, and what they've done in their career, and as you mentioned earlier in the interview, that uh, we've had success in a lot of other programs across the board, and that's where the rubber meets the road. It's it's the quality of people, and for me, playing a small role and trying to um, help create the resources so they can be successful and develop the talents they've had, and in turn, recruit the best and brightest student athletes that uh, you know want to be at Oklahoma. That answer, ladies and gentlemen, in a nutshell, explains why Joe Castiglione is one of the definitive consensus builder in all of college sports. Thanks, Joe. Rick, my pleasure. Look forward to talking with you again. 
Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. The producer of the show is Alex Cohen. Audio producer, Adam Wieson. Technical assistance provided by Jamie Weber, Tanner Simpkins, and Carlos Waddick. The executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso.